Hi, everyone. Welcome to the November 14th ASF Weekly Science Podcast. I'm Alicia, CSO of the Autism Science Foundation, and today's topic is telehealth. Now, we've talked about this in the past few months, at least a couple of years, but whether or not people or families like it better in terms of treatment and diagnosis, what's been the experience of families during the pandemics using telehealth when it comes to evaluation and intervention? And we've also wondered whether or not they work as well as they do as the interventions that are done in person. So the data I'm going to talk about is just the tiniest tip of the studies that are being conducted in this area. They're very early results, and there are some overall feedback and concerns and some information about what works for who. But none of what I'm going to discuss today constitutes anything other than you should say, this is information that I can use to consider and weigh with my primary care doctor, psychologist, pediatrician, or other healthcare providers in order to make some decisions or more importantly, answer questions. It's not meant to say any specific form of diagnosis, virtual diagnosis that is, or any particular form of virtual intervention is overwhelmingly evidence-based and has absolutely no further studies to be done on it. Of course, that's not the case. But again, many of you have been wondering, where's the data? And I'm telling you today what that data is. So just knowing some of this information can help you and understand what has been studied and what is still unknown. So first, let's dive into autism assessments. Geez, I have to tell you, during the pandemic, this was a huge mess, and we're still in the pandemic, but I'm talking about the heights of it, like 2020. The traditional assessments used to diagnose autism were in jeopardy. So the traditional autism diagnostic observation scale is a clinician tool that observes behaviors in children using different prompts to elicit those behaviors. Because kids with autism are more likely to pay attention to the mouth more so than the eyes... What happens if the mouth is covered with a mask? Some new tools were used online. Parents and caregivers provided the prompts rather than the clinician, and it was done in person. However, the interactions were videotaped and scored by a clinician or done over Zoom. There was no mask because the people in the room, the parent and the child, were not masked. Now, two of these were called the Tele-ASD-PEDS and the BOSA. The BOSA stands for Brief Observation of the Symptoms of Autism. This one is, again, done with the help of a caregiver in a naturalistic context like the home, but tasks are used by the parents to elicit behaviors that may or may not be present in autism, including eye contact, including joint attention, including mimicking and mirroring, and that helps facilitate the autism diagnosis. Not that it's more important than effectiveness of treatments given through telehealth, but I'm going to start with how are things going in terms of the evaluation of autism? How's it working? How do families and clinicians feel about the process? Does it just depend? I want to shout out to the Journal of Autism and Developmental Disorders who took on this topic of telehealth and had a special issue completely devoted to it this week. I'm highlighting just a few of the papers because nobody wants to hear me talk for more than 15 to 20 minutes. You all have better things to do, including listening to other podcasts, like Murder and Mystery podcasts. There's one on my list, Somebody Knows Something. That's supposed to be a good one. Anyway, Opinions and Perspectives of Autism Evaluations During the Pandemic. Let's go. 
For the most part, parents and clinicians were either satisfied or extremely satisfied with an evaluation process, even if it was done online virtually. But with a caveat, well, more than one caveat, but here's the huge caveat. Parents were only satisfied if they got an autism diagnosis and the clinician was sure of that diagnosis. Clinicians were also mostly satisfied if they were sure of the diagnosis. What happens if they weren't sure? What if the symptoms were unclear and the clinician wasn't sure whether or not it should be in the reevaluate in person category? Well, that affected satisfaction, both caregiver satisfaction and clinician satisfaction. Sometimes cases don't present super clearly. Sometimes autism presents little subtly. It's different in the home than it is in the clinic. And sometimes clinicians cannot be 100% sure after doing one or two of the regular evaluations. They have to do multiple ones. And a lot of times they have to do them in person. Clinicians also have been trained to do evaluations in person. They're probably not as sure about the evaluations that they give over telehealth. If the clinicians were confident in the telehealth or, or Zoom evaluation, then that made a difference. Now, if families knew the technology and had access to the technology, that increased the satisfaction as well. So it may not be for everyone. It's a good option, especially in the pandemic, and this option is not going away. Challenges to families in terms of transportation and getting time off of work is not changing. It can also be a benefit because clinicians get to see the home environment and families get to be in that home environment. I mean, I can tell you many families have told me they don't love someone videotaping their home if it's messy or unkept. That may just be me. But of course, I think other parents feel that way too. It's not supposed to be a replacement. I want to share with you some quotes from clinicians about their experience that give you some perspective of how they felt. One clinician said, We're doing some video assessments, but I have really not liked those. There's just been a few where I've done it by video and felt confident in the results. Another one says, the thing I'm not comfortable with is the confidence that I have that I'm getting the same quality of information from behavioral observations that I have in person. Another one says, the ones who I struggle with, the ones we struggle with as a team are the higher functioning children. They're like five and they're verbal because I want to see their face. I want to be right in front of them to catch the more subtle changes, and I'm not seeing it on video. And the last one said, the only time I didn't like it is when you had parents who were skeptical of the process. So if you're confident in a diagnosis based on what the parent had reported and what you'd seen, and then they're questioning, is this a legitimate way to get a diagnosis? Is this the evaluation even as robust as it needs to be? And I get that because for a diagnosis, you'll have that for life. And I want to say for this last one, I totally get it. These things should affect satisfaction. So what did they like about it? So one clinician said, so clinically, I feel like I'm much more informed when I'm watching children playing their own toys in their own homes as opposed to coming into my office and getting mad because we tried to check their blood pressure and getting frustrated with the traffic or sensing their parents stressed out about getting to the appointment. Another one said, I really liked what added to the parent's role in the evaluation. I think having the parent do some of the presses allowed the parent to see their child's interactions from another perspective and could buy in differently to a diagnosis because their role in that, as well as we just provided some opportunities to kind of touch into things that could be brought up later in an intervention. 
Some other things that may have affected it, some other things that maybe weren't as profound, but some other things that maybe weren't as pronounced, but definitely were influential, were how clinicians felt as they were supported by their institution to learn and administer telehealth diagnoses. Now, at the beginning, nobody knew what the hell they were doing. So appointments went long and people were annoyed because of waiting for their appointment from the last one going long. And that's been worked out. And it also needs to be continued to be covered by insurance. There needs to be better internet to access for all to make this a continued option. So families, now here's what they had to say about something called the TEDI, the Telehealth Evaluation of Development for Infants. Remember, infants are not normally diagnosed with ASD. So this is more along the lines of getting a remote developmental evaluation. It involves caregiver questionnaires and a telehealth session where caregivers are coached through a series of play activities and recorded and then scored by a psychologist. Most of the reported challenges and suggested adaptations reflected individual family or caregiver preferences rather than universal problems. For example, one parent thought the novelty of the toy kit increased their social engagement, while another thought the novelty of the toolkit negatively impacted the social interaction. So you see how that works. It's not going to be great for everybody. It's not going to be terrible for everybody. So they said things like, seeing my baby not react to some of the scenarios or asks of the clinicians was challenging. It was hard to see, but it's the reality. And also, taking travel out of the equation is ideal, especially for parents with children of sensory issues. This aspect alone is why I would choose telehealth over in-person visits. So I want to say it's not all rainbows and roses, but the right balance to the right environment and family could make all the difference. Okay, so assessments. They seem to be doing okay using a Zoom or a telehealth version in terms of accuracy. And also, according to a study published in this specific issue of JAD about the BOSA and other studies of the tele-ASD PEDS seem to show that it's pretty accurate, although there were some limitations I already mentioned. The BOSA admits it may be just a little less pre precise than the in-person ADOS 2 when the symptoms are more subtle, again, the confidence of the clinician. The authors noticed that there was less likelihood of eliciting restrictive and repetitive behaviors online or using the BOSA, and study after study has shown that kids will behave differently at home than in outside environments. So getting both at some point may be ideal rather than one or the other. But for the reasons I already listed, it should definitely continue to be an option. Now, diagnosis is one thing and one hurdle, but interventions are another. Even before the pandemic, researchers were playing around with and having some success with remotely delivered or parent-mediated interventions that were done remotely. And they've had success, and they've had influence on child outcomes, and they also have the benefits of reducing parent stress. So this week in this issue of the Journal of Autism and Developmental Disorders, researchers in Canada, led by Jessica Bryan, who is also a member of the Baby Siblings Research Consortium, showed the effectiveness of an in-person parent-mediated program called the Social ABCs. She actually showed that in-person model to be effective on an individualized basis when the clinician and the parent worked one-to-one -one a few months ago, and I think I already mentioned it. That was already, that was a 12-week intervention. So that original social ABCs did demonstrate positive outcomes for both toddlers and their parents, including positive affect sharing and social communication. And the parents ac acquired the skills and feelings of empowerment, which is fantastic. 
So what they did is they decided to modify the intervention in three ways. First, they changed the length of the intervention from 12 weeks to six weeks. Second, instead of having individual coaching, as I mentioned before, they moved to group-based coaching methods, which has been shown to have some advantages, which I'll talk about at the end. This means parents gathered with group facilitators. So instead of having, having a one-to-one, there was like six people in a Zoom room along with the coach. Third, they adapted the group-based model for virtual delivery with in-home individual coaching sessions and group learning sessions. Again, one instructor, five or six people all in the same Zoom room, all delivered, of course, under a virtual platform. For the virtual adaptation, the engagement in-group learning sessions was adapted with the addition of encouraging parents to keep their cameras turned on as much as possible, permitting some of the parents to turn them off periodically to respect the privacy of other members in the home. Remember, when you're in a group situation in person, everything's all out there. When you're in a group situation at home, you can put your camera off. So they compared group-based virtual learning to in-person learning. They found that there was a diverse set of individuals represented, which may partially address the issue that I mentioned in previous podcasts of only rich white people being able to access virtual training. So families in the virtual group were more, more likely to attend almost all the sessions, which is great. That makes sense, right? They're doing them at home. They don't have to take the bus. They don't have to drive. They don't have to get off work. They don't have to get out of making dinner. I don't know. Here's some other things. So very few families attended half the sessions or less. On the other hand, the virtual families were less likely to fill out the forms they received. Logistically, I can kind of see this, right? If you're in an in-person intervention, you just, at the end, fill it out real quick and hand it in and bye. If you're online, you have to print it out, you have to fill it out, you have to scan it in and send it back. To get over that, the study PI sent them in the mail and included addressed stamped envelopes with the forms. But you know what? That didn't necessarily work either. It happens. You know, some days I don't even want to check my mail, so I get how some of these forms just don't get returned. As it turns out, there were improvements in both groups, which means that virtual group coaching didn't impede the positive response to the program. Virtual was just as good as individual. The toddlers spoke, the toddlers increased their spoken words and their words understood. It became, they became more responsive to the parent's voice and parental stress decreased. There were some slight differences between the original individual coaching model versus the group model, but kind of just mild differences. The goal of the study was more about how to show how the virtual model was effective, and it was. Now, one of the advantages of the group versus individual coaching was there was greater social support, connecting with other parents or being part of the group. So people were in the same room with other people, or the same virtual room, I should say, with other people who are comfortable with autism and offered understanding and reassurance and could also be positive. And this, plus the virtual component, made it an intervention that should probably be used in the future. But the social ABCs is not the only intervention that went virtual. A, a program at UCLA called PEERS has been used for almost 15 years. PEER stands for the Program for the Education and Enrichment of Relational Skills, and it focuses on social skills using a small group format, role play, rehearsal, and generalization homework outside the clinic to make sure people are practicing what they've learned in real life. 
It leads to improved social skills and social engagement and reduced social problems. It's usually done in young adults and adolescents since this is the time that the adolescents and young adults are shifting away from the family and towards people their own age. But here we are in 2022 or 2021, and people are spending a lot of time online. So maybe it's time to embrace social networking. People with autism like social networking. So why not consider the pandemic and the new way that people on the spectrum prefer to communicate? The authors acknowledge that not all of this electronic communication is healthy, but maybe a training program will help people navigate those dangerous parts. They made peers virtual by conducting the same 16-week program, 90-minute sessions, concurrent adolescent and parent groups with the same level of training of group leaders, just using Zoom rather than face-to-face. The lessons include conversational skills, electronic communication, appropriate use of humor, starting and ending conversations, handling disagreements, handling teasing, avoiding bullying, handling rumors and gossip, and They also got a session on starting and ending video chats and entering and exiting conversations online. There were also role-playing and practice sessions. Frankly, I want to know how I sign up my typically developing child for something like this. This sounds great. The online version led to an increase in social skills, an increase in knowledge of social cues, an increase in social engagement, and a decrease in problem behaviors. There was no difference between the telehealth and the in-person intervention of peers, except the telehealth group did lead to more get-togethers of the parents. I mean, I don't know what that means, get-togethers, because this was COVID, but data is data. And again, since it was COVID, I hope these get-togethers were socially distanced. All of these studies, plus even more in this special issue of the Journal of Autism and Developmental Disorders, showed the promise of virtual diagnosis and interventions, even interventions that are around social skills, which, of course, by nature, need in-person interactions. But they seem to work equally. This helps not just during the pandemic, but during this new virtual world we'll probably be in for a while. Everyone needs social support skills, especially your kids let out of these COVID cages. This doesn't mean that everyone should sit at home all the time and not get out into the world because things can be done at home, but it does mean that can be an option. There was no hybrid option in either one of these, and that's okay. This was done during the pandemic. There was no hybrid option at all. But maybe that can be integrated into the future. But for now, people were okay with virtual, and with some future tweaks, it can be an option. I know no one wants it to be the way that it happened in 2020, where we were just all dropped into the deep end of a cold pool. But now we're better prepared, not just for the next pandemic, but also for the new world we live in, which seems to be more about staying at home on Zoom and communicating electronically than it does being in person. Thank you for listening this week. I will talk to you on the 21st.